0: Welcome to the True Crime Never Sleeps podcast. I'm your host, Larry Lees. And on today's episode, we're diving into Al Capone. But first, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Poddex, for sponsoring this episode. Poddex is a unique tool to engage your audience and get more engagement. Check out poddex.com and use the promo code Larry21. If you're a podcaster of any size, you're definitely going to want to check out Poddex today. And thanks to Audible for sponsoring this episode. You can check them out today. You can get a three-day, 30-day free trial, and a free audiobook of your choice at audibletrial.com slash Larry21. And of course, we'd like also like to remind you, you can be a part of the show by sending us a voicemail at 682-305-0483. Let us know your thoughts on the topics we covered or anything else you'd like to discuss about the cases we covered. Or if you have a topic for a future episode, let us know. And as always, you can remain anonymous if you'd like. But you can also find us on Twitter at True Crime NS and on Facebook at True Crime Research Podcast. And of course, you can always leave a comment in the comment section below. We try to respond to every comment. And of course, before we move on, please hit that like button and subscribe to the channel. And as always you so much for watching and listening. And now we can dive into today's topic. Al Capone. Alphonse Gabriel Capone, sometimes known by the nickname Scarface, was an American gangster and businessman who attained a notoriety during the Prohibition era as the co-founder and boss of the Chicago Outfit. His seven-year reign as a crime boss ended when he went to prison at the age of 33. Capone was born in New York City in 1899 to Italian immigrants. He joined the Five Points Gang as a teenager and became a bouncer in organized crime premises such as brothels. In his early 20s, he moved to Chicago and became a bodyguard and trusted ally of Johnny Torrio, head of a criminal syndicate that legally supplied alcohol, the forerunner of the outfit, and was politically protected through the Union Siciliana the conflict with the Northside gang was instrumental in Capone's rise and fall. Torrio went into retirement after the Northside government almost killed him, handing control to Capone. Capone expanded the bootlegging business through increasingly violent means, but his mutually profitable relationships with Mayor William Hale Thompson and the city's police when he seemed safe from law enforcement. Capone apparently reveled in attention, such as the cheers from spectators when he appeared in ball games. He made donations to various charities and was viewed, by many, as a modern-day neighborhood. However, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, in which seven gang rivals were murdered in broad daylight, damaged the public image of Chicago and Capone, leading influential citizens to demand government action in newspapers to dub Capone public enemy number one. Yeah, that's a little better the federal authorities became intent on jailing Capone and charged him with 22 counts of tax evasion. He was convicted of five counts in 1931. During a highly publicized case, the judge admitted yeah, I lost my notes. The judge admitted as evidence Capone's admission of his income and unpaid taxes. <clears throat> unpaid taxes made during prior and negotiations to pay the government taxes he owed. He was convicted and sentenced to 11 years in federal prison. After conviction, he replaced his defense teams with experts in tax law, and his grounds for appeal were strengthened by a Supreme Court ruling, but his appeal ultimately failed. Capone showed signs of neurosyphilis early in his sentence and became increasingly debilitated before being released after almost eight years of incarceration. On January 25th, 1947, he died of cardiac arrest after a stroke. Capone initially became involved with small-time gangs that included the Junior Forty Thieves and the Bowery Boys. He then joined the Brooklyn Lippers, Rippers excuse me, and then the Five Points Gang based in Lower Manhattan. During this time, he was employed and mentored by fellow racketeer Frankie Yale, a bartender in a Coney Island dance hall and saloon called the Harvard Inn. Capone inadvertently insulted a woman while working the door, and he was slashed with a knife three times on the left side of his face by her brother Frank Lucio. The wounds led to the nickname Scarface, which Capone loathed. The date when this occurred has been reported with inconsistencies. When Capone was photographed, he hid the scar on the left side of his face, saying that the injuries were war wounds. He was called Snorky by his closest friends, a term for a sharp dresser. In 1919, Capone left New York City for Chicago at the invitation of Johnny Torrio, who was re- imported by crime boss James Big Jim Colosimo as an enforcer. Capone be- began in Chicago as a bouncer in a brothel, whereas, whereas thought the most likely way for him to have contracted syphilis. Capone was aware of being infected at an early stage, and timely use of salvarsan probably could have cured the infection, but he apparently never sought treatment. In 1923, he purchased a small house at 7244 South Prairie Avenue in the Park Manor neighborhood in the city's south side for only $5,500. According to the Chicago Daily Tribune hijacker, Joe Howard was killed on May 7th, 1923, after he tried to interfere with the Capone Torrio bootleg beer business. In the early years of the decade, his name began appearing in newspapers, sport pages, where he was described as a boxing promoter. Torrio took over the criminal empire after the latter's murder on May 11, 1920, in which Capone was suspected of being involved. Torrio headed an essentially Italian organized crime group that was the biggest in the city. Capone as his right-hand man. He was weary of being drawn into gang wars and tried to negotiate agreements over territory between rival crime groups. The smaller North Side gang, led by Dean O'Banion, came under pressure from the... Apologies if I'm getting these names wrong... Genna brothers who were allied with Torrio. O'Banion found that Torrio was, a, was unhelpful with the encroachment of the Genna's into the north side, despite his pretensions to be a settler of disputes. In a fateful step, Torrio arranged the murder of O'Banion at his flower shop on November 10, 1924. This placed Jaime Weiss at the head of the gang, backed by Vincent Drusey and Bugs Moran. Weiss had been a close friend of O'Banion, and the North Siders made it a priority to get revenge on his killers. During prohibition in the U.S., Capone was involved with bootleggers in Canada who helped him smuggle liquor into the U.S. When Capone was asked if he knew Rocco Perry, Bill as Canada's king of the bootleggers, he replied, Why? I don't even know which street Canada is on. Other sources, however, claim that Capone had certainly visited Canada where he maintained some hideways. hideways, The Royal Canadian Canadian Mounted Police states that there is no evidence that he ever set foot on Canadian soil. In January 1925, Capone was ambushed, leaving him shaken but unhurt. Twelve days later, Torrio was returning from a shopping trip when he was shot several times. After recovering, he effectively resigned and handed control to Capone who, at the age of 26, became the new boss of an organization that took in illegal breweries and a transportation network that reached to Canada. With political and law enforcement protection, in turn, he was able to use more violence to increase revenue. An establishment that refused to purchase liquor from him often got blown up, and as many as 100 people were killed in such bombings during the 1920s. Rivals saw Capone as responsible for the proliferation of brothels in the city. Capone often enlisted the help of local members of the black community into his operations. Jazz musicians Milt Hilton and Lionel Hampton had uncles who worked for Capone on the south side of Chicago. A fan of jazz as well, Capone once asked clarinetist Johnny Dodds to play a number that Dodds did not know. Capone, Capone split a $100 bill in half and told Dodds that he would get the other half when he learned it. Capone also sent two bodyguards to accompany jazz pianist Earl Hines on a road trip. Capone indulged in custom suits, cigars, gourmet food and drink, and female companionship. He was particularly known for his flamboyant and costly jewelry. His favorite responses to questions about his activities were, quote, I'm just a businessman giving the people what they want. All I do is satisfy a public demand. Capone had become a national celebrity and talking point. In November... In 1925, Antonio Lombardo was named head of the Union Siciliana, a Sicilian-American benevolent society that had been corrupted by gangsters and infuriated Joe Aiello, who had wanted the position himself, believed Capone was responsible for Lombardo's ascension, and he resented the non-Sicilians' attempts to manipulate affairs within the Union. He severed su- all personal and business ties with Lombardo and entered into a feud with him and Capone. He allied himself with several other Capone enemies, including Jack Cazuda, who ran vice and gambling houses together. He plotted to illuminate both Lombardo and Capone, and starting in the spring of 1927, made multiple attempts to assassinate Capone. On one occasion, he offered money to the chef of Joseph Diamond Joe Esposito's Bellin Napoli Cafe, Capone's favorite restaurant, to put acid in Capone and Lombardo's soup. Reports indicated he offered between $10,000 and $35,000. Instead, the chef exposed the plot to Capone, who responded by dispatching men to destroy one of yellow stores on West Division Street with machine gun fire. More than 200 bullets were fired into the brothers' bakery. On May 28, 1927, wounding Joseph brother Antonio. During the summer and autumn of 1927, a number of hitmen... ALO hired to kill Capone were themselves slain. Among them were Anthony Russo, no connection to the Marvel director, and Vincent uh, Spacuzza, each of whom had been offered $25,000 by ALO to kill Capone and Lombardo. He eventually offered a $50,000 reward to anyone who eliminated Capone. At least 10 gunmen tried to collect on the bounty, but ended up dead. Capone's ally, Ralph Sheldon, even attempted to kill both Capone and Lombardo for the reward. But Capone henchman, Frank Nitti's intelligence network, learned of the, of the transaction, and had Sheldon shot in front of a west side hotel, although he did not die. In 1927, November 1927, he organized machine gun ambushes across from Lombardo's home in a cigar store frequented by Capone. Those plans were foiled after an anonymous tip led police to raid several addresses and arrest Milwaukee gunmen, Angelo Lamentillo and four other gunmen. After the police discovered receipts for the apartments in Lamentillo's pockets, he confessed that Ayello had hired him to kill Capone and Lombardo, leading the police to arrest himself and bring him to the South Clark street police station. Upon learning the arrest, Capone dispatched nearly two dozen gunmen to stand guard outside the station and await Aiello's release. The men made no attempt to conceal their purpose there, and reporters and photographers rushed to the scene to, to observe Aiello's expected murder. The protagonists of Chicago's politics have long been associated with questionable methods and even newspaper circulation wars, but the need for du- bootleggers... To have protection in City Hall had introduced a far more serious level of violence and graft. Generally, seen, Capone is generally seen to have having an appreciable effect in bringing about the victories of Republican William Hale Thompson, especially in the 1927 mayoral race when Thompson campaigned for a wide-open town, at one time hinting that he'd reopen illegal saloons. Such a proclamation helped his campaign gain the support of Capone he allegedly accepted a contribution of $250,000 from the gangster. In the 1927 mayoral race, Thompson beat William Emmett Dever by a relatively slim margin. Thompson's powerful Cook County political machine had drawn on the often parochial Italian community, but this was in tension with his highly successful courting of African Americans. Another politician, Joe Esposito, became a political rival of Capone. And on March 21, 1928, Esposito was killed in a drive-by shooting in front of his house. Capone continued to back Thompson. Voting booths were targeted by Capone's bomber James Bel Castro, and the wards where Thompson's opponents were thought to have support. On April 10, 1928, the so-called Pineapple Primary, causing the deaths of at least 15 people. Bel Castro was accused of the murder of lawyer Octavius. Granati, an African American who challenged Thompson's candidate for the African American vote, and was chased throughout through the streets on polling day by cars of gunmen before being shot dead. Four policemen were among those charged along with Bel Castro, but all charges were dropped after key witnesses recanted their statements. An indication of the attitude of local law enforcement to Capone's organization came in 1931 when Bel Castro was wounded in a shooting. Police suspect uh, suggested a skeptical journalist that Bill Castro was an independent operator. A 1929 report by the New York Times connected Capone to the 1926 murder of assistant state attorney William McSwiggin to the 1928 murders of chief investigator Ben Newmark and former mentor Frankie Yale. And now we're going to dive into one of the most infamous events in Capone's criminal history, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Capone was widely assumed to have been responsible for ordering the 1929 St. Valentine's Day Massacre, despite being at his home Florida home at the time of the massacre. The massacre was an attempt to eliminate bugs Morant, head of the Northside gang, and the motivation for the plan may have been the fact that some expensive whiskey illegally imported from Canada via the Detroit River had been hijacked while it was being transported to Cook County, Illinois. Moran was the last survivor of the Northside gunman. His succession had come about because his similarly aggressive predecessors had been killed in the violence that followed the murder of original leader Dean O'Banion. To monitor their targets, habits, and movements, Capone's men rented an apartment across from the trucking warehouse at 2122 North Clark Street, which served as Moran's headquarters. On the morning of Thursday, February 14th, Capone's lookout signaled four gunmen, disguised as police officers, to initiate a police raid. The fake police lined the seven victims along a wall and signaled for accomplices armed with machine guns and shotguns. Moran was not among the victims. Photos of the slain slain victims shocked the public and damaged Capone's image. Within days, Capone received a summons to testify before a Chicago grand jury on charges of federal prohibition violations. But he claimed to be too unwell to attend. In an effort to clean up his image, Capone donated to charities and sponsored a soup kitchen in Chicago during the Depression. In the wake of the St. Valentine's Day massacre, Walter Strong, publisher of the Chicago Daily News, Scott decided to ask his friend, President Herbert Hoover, for federal intervention to stem Chicago's lawlessness. He arranged a meeting at the White House just two weeks after Hoover's inauguration. On March 19, 1929, Strong, joined by Frank Loesch of the Chicago Crime Commission and Laird Bill, made their case to the president. In Hoover's 1952 memoir, the former president reported that Strong argued, quote, Chicago was in the hands of the gangsters that the police and magistrates were completely under their control, that the federal government was the only force by which the city's ability to govern itself could be restored. At once, I directed that all the federal agencies concentrate upon uh, Mr. Capone and his allies. That meeting launched a multi-agency attack on Capone, Treasury and Justice Department Departments developed plans for income tax prosecutions against Chicago gangsters and a small elite squad of Prohibition Bureau agents, whose members included Elliot Ness, were deployed against bootleggers in a city used to corruption. These lawmen were incorruptible. Charles Schwartz, a writer for the Chicago Daily News, dubbed them untouchables. To support federal efforts, Strong secretly used his newspaper's resources to gather and share intelligence on the Capone outfit. On March 27, 1929, Capone was arrested by FBI agents as he left a Chicago courtroom after testifying to a grand jury that was investigating violations of federal prohibition laws. He was charged with contempt of court for feigning illness. To avoid an earlier appearance, on May 16, 1929, Capone was arrested in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, for carrying a concealed weapon. On May 17, 1929, Capone was indicted by a grand jury, and a trial was held before Philadelphia Municipal Court Judge John E. Walsh. Following entering of a guilty plea by his attorney, Capone was sentenced to a prison term of one year. On August 8, 1929, Capone was transferred to Philadelphia's Eastern State Penitentiary. A week after his release in March 1930, Capone was listed as the number one public enemy on the unofficial Chicago Crimes Commission's widely publicized list. Assistant Attorney General Mabel Walker Willie Brandt is said to have originated the tactic of charging obviously wealthy crime figures with federal tax evasion on the basis of their luxurious lifestyles. In 1927, the Supreme Court ruled in the United States v. Sullivan that the approach was legally sound. Illegally earned income was subject to income tax. The key to Capone's conviction on tax charges was not his spending, but proving his income and the most valuable evidence in that regard originated in his offer to pay tax. Ralph, his brother and a gangster in his own right, was tried for tax evasion in 1930. Ralph spent the next 18 months in prison after being convicted in a two-week trial over which Wilkerson presided. Seeking to avoid the same fate, Al Capone ordered his lawyers to regularize his tax position. Although it was not done, his lawyer made crucial admissions when stating the income that Capone was willing to pay tax on for various years, admitting income of 100000 for 1928 and 1929, for instance. Hence, without any investigation, the government had been given a letter from a lawyer acting for Capone, conceding his largest his large taxable income for certain years he had paid no tax on. On March 13, 1931, Capone was charged with tax evasion from 1924 in a secret grand jury. On June 5, 1931, Capone was indicted by a federal grand jury on 22 counts of income tax evasion from 1925 through 1929. He was released on a $50,000 bail. He was then indicted on 5,000 violations of the Volstead Act, which is a bunch of prohibition laws. On June 16, 1931, at the Chicago Federal Building in the courtroom of Wilkerson, Capone pleaded guilty to income tax evasion and the 5000 Volstead Act violations as part of a a two-and-a-half-year prison sentence plea bargain. However, on July 30, 1931, Wilkerson refused to honor the plea bargain, and Capone's counsel rescinded the guilty pleas. On the second day of trial, Wilkerson deemed that the 1930 letter to federal authorities could be admitted into evidence, overruling objections that a lawyer could not confess for his client. <laughs> Capone was convicted on five counts of income tax evasion on October 17, 1931, and was sentenced a week later to 11 years in federal prison. He was fined $50,000 7692 for court costs, and was held liable for $200,000 plus interest due on his back taxes. The contempt of court sentence was served concurrently. Capone was sentenced to, or was, excuse me, was sent to Atlanta U.S. Penitentiary in May 1932 at the age of 33. Upon his arrival, Capone was officially diagnosed with syphilis and gonorrhea. He was also experiencing withdrawal symptoms from cocaine addiction, the use of which perforated his nasal septum. Capone was competent in his prison job of stitching soles on shoes for eight hours a day, but his letters were barely coherent. He was seen as a weak personality, so out of his depth dealing with bowling fellow inmates that his cellmate, seasoned convict Red Rudinsky, feared that Capone would have a breakdown. Rudinsky was formerly a small-time criminal associated with the Capone gang, and found himself becoming a protector for Capone. On June, <clears throat> Capone was then uh, recently moved to Alcatraz Federal Penitentiary in August 1934, and in 1936, Capone was stabbed and wounded by fellow Alcatraz inmate James C. Lucas. Due to his good behavior, Capone was permitted to play banjo in the Alcatraz prison band, which gave regular Sunday concerts for other inmates. At Alcatraz, Capone's decline became increasingly evident as neurosyphilis progressively eroded his mental faculties. His formal diagnosis of syphilis of the brain was made in February 1938. He spent the last year of his Alcatraz sentence in the hospital, Section Confused and Disoriented. Capone completed his term in Alcatraz on January 6, 1939, and was transferred to the Federal Correctional Institution at Terminal Island in California to serve out his sentence for contempt of court. He was paroled on November 16, 1939, after his wife appealed to the court based on his reduced mental cap- capabilities. And that is all we have for this episode of the True Crime Never Sleeps podcast and our story of Al Capone. Let us know in the comments section below, is there something we missed? Something we should have included? What were your thoughts about Al Capone and his, I guess, power grab of Chicago? And if you want to support this show, you can buy us a coffee at com slash TCNS. Your support helps the channel grow, upgrade our equipment, bring in new hosts, be able to pay them, and create even better shows. Your support can help make that happen, whether it's $1, $2, $5, $20, $50, however much you want to offer. Just go to buymeacoffee.com TCNS. As always, thank you so much for watching and listening. We'll see you next time have been listening to the true crime never sleeps podcast thank you for listening you can follow us on facebook at true crime never sleeps podcast and on twitter at true crime ns and follow us on instagram at true crime never sleeps thanks for watching if you want to support the show buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash tcnn or become a patron at patreon.com slash true crime never sleeps